Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am joined today by Harry McGee from our political staff. Hi, Harry. Hi, Hugh. And I'm delighted to welcome back Professor Jane Souter, who is Director of the Institute of Future Media, Democracy and Society at Dublin City University. And as if that wasn't enough of a mouthful, she's also uh, currently a visiting fellow at Stanford University, which is where she's joining us from today. Welcome back, Jane. Hi, Hugh. Thank you. Uh, I've got to ask you, what's the weather like in Stanford? Well, it's, yeah, that's one of the best bits, getting out of Dublin January and February. It's kind of 17 degrees today with some blue sky. Well, let, let, us, let us drag you back to the detail <laughs> and, and indeed sometimes the misery of Irish politics and Irish society because we want to look at a, um, at a few things today. In a little while, we're going to be talking about citizens' assemblies, which I know is something you've had an interest in. Indeed, you've been involved in setting them up over the years. And Harry, a little bit later, we want to talk about Sinn Féin and carbon tax and various other things. But I want to start with the slight brouhaha which has uh, spun out over the last few days about the um, the, the Women's Council, the National uh, Women's Council of Ireland. Um, and a, I think it was originally, Harry, supposed to be a rally to take place outside Dáil and although I think it's now been rebranded as a protest. And the question of the involvement of some political parties and other political parties not being involved... Um, a lot of that stuff, that stuff has been pretty well rehearsed now. Jennifer Bray had a good piece about it um, in the Irish Times at the weekend. Does it, it, does it amount to anything? Does it amount to a hill of beans at all? Uh, well, I, I think it does, uh, Hugh, because um, it, it's, it, it has become political. Now, I, I think it's impossible to, to divorce the political from any organisation. I mean, politics is is so deeply woven into our lives, both public and private, that it's impossible to say I am apolitical. And the the, the uh, National Women's Council says that it is apolitical, but it's not. It is political. But I think the difficulty that the NWC has in relation to this protest is this, that it's not distinguishing the policy issues from the actual personalities and political parties so instead of looking at pol- political issues uh, that pertain uh, to equality uh, and looking at them seriatim, one by one, on a, a basis which they are uh, adjudicated according to their own rights, uh, certainly some of those who are involved with the NWC and those who were quoted by Jennifer in her excellent piece on Saturday, and uh, we all, she also quoted some of the tweets, uh, seemed to identify political certain political parties uh, with all the inequality uh, that the state uh, has foisted upon women for over 80 or 90 years. And number one, that was too broad a statement. It's too sweeping a statement. And, and actually, all of those parties in their own time 
have done amazing things to uh, strive for and to achieve equality in this society. So I, I, I think that, number one, that was slightly naive uh, for them to associate those three parties with, with everything that's gone wrong in relation to uh, equality. I, I think the, the second difficulty uh, was that, uh, you know, it's the wrong target. They should be targeting the issue rather than the personality. And the difficulty for the NWC is that it became an ad hominem uh, attack and an ad hominem attack that divides rather than united, that put the NWC into a political, into a particular political space that perhaps the NWC might feel uncomfortable in over the fullness uh, of time. So so there's a few things within that, Jane. I mean, just to say that it's, I mean, the, the, the point of issue is supposedly that some members of the government parties wished to participate in this rally or asked why they were not invited, Fianna Gael, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil and, and to some extent the Green Party too. Um, and the, the answer came back that this was a, a protest rally and so that therefore it wasn't appropriate for, for members of the government to be involved. But there is a... There is, I don't know what you'd call it, a contradiction, a tension, a paradox between that sort of position on this issue. And these are very, these are very important um, points of political discussion right now in the wake of the Ashling Murphy murder and questions of women's safety, domestic abuse, the provision of services like like women's refuge, like women's refu- refuges. But that, on the one hand, as Harry says, I was looking at a at a, at a quote there from one of the spokespeople. Um, um, who said, and and, and she, she said in relation to this, and I quote, the government had no interest in advancing any issues on domestic and sexual violence and access to abortion either. And the pretending otherwise is a boring lie. And that kind of sits very uncomfortably with the fact that we know that the uh, NWCI is, is in all the time with government. It has access, you know, there's a fairly open door there and it has meetings all the time with the relevant ministers. And I just don't know how one squares that circle or is there a danger of the organisation being seen as being a bit two-faced? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things going on here. I was interested to read um, Jennifer's piece and particularly about the rebranding because certainly in the past, the NWCI would have been perceived as, you know, fairly sort of conservative voice. I remember having conversations with them where they were totally against any kind of equal paternity leave and so on. And they just wanted to increase maternity, which isn't necessarily always the best outcome for fathers and children and families and so on. So I saw in Jennifer's piece, they paid a lot of money to consultants to be rebranded you know, to uh, to try to move more into this space. And this is obviously an attempt to do it. Um, but I think really what we should be doing is thinking about, you know, how should we be dealing with uh, civil society? And what are the kind of differences in civil society? Who should be funded? In what way should there, who should have charitable status and so on? So, you know, we do all of this very ad hoc funding of civil society and it's even part of the way we set up education and health and everything in the, in the beginning of the stage. If you look at the amount of, say, suicide charities that we fund, you know, it's often about the people who are best able to, to lobby into government get funded. And I wonder whether, in fact, we should be looking for specific services and then tendering for them and putting them out. And then at the same time, you obviously need to have a difference between a service provision and a lobbying part of any organisation. Because on the one hand, like Transparency International, for example, might do uh, services into the to the Gardaí, um 
to, you know, do training on the importance of whistleblowing legislation or something. But on the other hand, they, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to lobby for more stringent whistleblowing legislation. But there needs to be a kind of division in it. And then at the same time, we also have the huge problem where we decide that some of these civil societies are uh, organisations are political and therefore can't have charitable status, and others aren't political and do have charitable status, and kind of the revenue is involved in these decisions. So I think this whole space, um, the kind of nexus between government, civil society, charity, and so on, is an awful mess. And really, we should be sitting down and trying to think about how should this space work? What is the best way for this space to work in the in the 21st century? Obviously, we need some people other than the state to provide some services. We also need people to be able to lobby and we need people to be able to protest. But how do we actually manage this when we have the same organisations involved in kind of overlapping parts, which makes it difficult? So I think we really need to think back and sit back and look at the whole space. I mean, can I can I ask you before I go back to Harry? I think it's widely widely accepted. I don't have numbers to hand, but it is widely accepted that for historical reasons, primarily because of the very close relationship between uh, church and state in Ireland in the first the first decades of the of of the state, this voluntary sector is particularly large here when it comes to things like the provision of health services, voluntary hospitals, the education system and other charities. You mentioned things like suicide charities and those sorts of things. Um, and that's, you know, that's like some people would see that as a problem. Some people wouldn't, but it seems very baked into the Irish system. But then when you get to this question of groups that have an advocacy role, and there's a, there's a whole number of them which receive funding by the state from the state in one form or another, that seems like a more recent phenomenon. I think Jennifer suggests in her piece at one point that it has its roots in the, uh, in the days of Bertie Ahern's government and the way in which that was all set up and that, you know, uh, some people would see that as a form of bribing, another one would see it as a as a form of setting up these spaces for civic discourse and funding these groups. It, it does seem to me to mostly go back to then. That's when, that's when these groups started getting really significant support from the state. Yeah, I think so. Well, obviously, there was very significant support for the other voluntary sector groups in terms of health and education before that. But that's certainly when the uh, when the net was uh, was very much widened. Um, and I just think it's something we need to think about. It's grown in a very sort of ad hoc manner. And that brings up all sorts of contradictions and all sorts of areas where we wonder, well, why does that group get funded to do that and not that group? And then if that group is funded for that service, does that mean that they can't advocate for that other service? You know, where is the contradiction? What's the difference between the service provision and the advocacy and the the, the lobbying and, and so on? And then why is one a, a, a charity with the significant tax advantages that, uh, that that accrues and another one isn't a charity because it's political? You know, you can think back to some of the ads that... Uh, you know, some of the organisations would have tried to run before, but they weren't allowed to because they were deemed to be political, but yet they were, you know, sort of lobbying. So there's all sorts of um, unintended consequences and, you know, all, all sorts of um, problems with it. And I think it would be a really good idea for us to actually look at it and see, OK, maybe it's part of our political culture to have some of this and a greater involvement in civil society and we're a small country and it brings people closer. But how is it done? How transparent is it? Who's getting the funding and on what basis? And then what 
rights and responsibilities does that give them? Um, so I, I just think it's a it's an area that's pretty messy, and we should really be looking at it. I mean, the, 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 the specific case, this specific case is an interesting one, Harry, because I think it's quite illustrative in some ways. And the, the descriptions we've seen over the last weeks, it looks to me, the rebranding, which uh, which Jane re- referred to there, which has happened over the last couple of years, um, and a couple of the significant figures who are now speaking uh, and have been quoted on behalf of the organisation over the last two years, have had um, have worked in the past with Sinn Féin or been involved directly with that party. And there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. In fact, the roots of the NWCI are, are really in a in a number of the kind of what you might call the first wave of um, of feminist politicians who all or who many of whom were members of Fine Gael, people like Monica Barnes and Gemma Hussey. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. But I wonder, is the organisation re- repositioning itself? What do you think? This has happened over the last two years. Sinn Féin is the biggest party in the country. A lot of people think it'll be in government within the next uh, couple of years or so. So is this rebrand a reaction to the political realities on the ground? Well, it'll be interesting to see if Sinn Féin do go into government, whether uh, Sinn Féin will be invited onto the NWC platform or not. Uh, One tweet in particular struck me uh, from Sarah Clarkin, who is uh, the communication officer. She tweeted, um, the NWCI's job is to represent the members. No one with an interest in feminine wants to hear from parties who do zero to further the interests of women, like more refuge spaces, affordable childcare, accessible abortion, time to listen for... Government, And that's a very nakedly political statement to make on behalf of the NWC. And it goes back to the net point I was making at the start, is that you have to, you know, I, I think that's an ad hominem attack and, and a kind of a broad brushstroke attack on all three government parties saying that they have done nothing throughout their history. And that's patently untrue. And I think that those who are involved with the NWC have to distinguish between the issue and the personalities or politicians involved. And that's a very... Uh, basic but simple point that 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 has to be made. I think on the one, but also, but also, can I ask? Can I ask you, Harry? Uh, uh, does that attack even hold credibility? There's another. There was another piece over the course of the weekend from Brida O'Brien, who, uh, as her column would make clear, and it was comes no surprise to some of our listeners, she's no fan of the of the Women's Council because she doesn't share many of its uh, many of its political objectives. So she's coming from a socially conservative position, which is which is perfectly legitimate in her own right, and she talks about freedom of information documents about meetings between Orla O'Connor, who, uh, who's the head of the of the organisation, and Stephen Donnelly, and she re- reproduces some of them in her column. And you definitely get a sense of a collegiate cosiness, not of somebody who is kind of, who's going into government and trying to knock down doors and uh, make this, there's, there's, a, there's sort of an arrangement to meet, uh, which is a sort of a, a meeting of equals, which many other parts of civic society wouldn't perhaps approach it in the same way if they had the chance of meeting a minister uh, in a lobbying capacity. So there's a sense that the organisation is having its cake and eating it. On the one hand, nothing is being done by government and the political parties have failed utterly. On the other hand, they're actually pretty cosy with them. Yeah, running with the hare and chasing with the with the hound. And I mean, I, did, I, I don't think I heard from, I was on holidays last week, so I, I wasn't listening as, as closely as I might have been, but I don't think I heard from Orla O'Connor. And I was surprised that she didn't intervene uh, in terms of this debate that was raging all week. And Joe Duffy featured it prominently on Liveline for two days running during the course uh, of of the week. And uh, the various protagonists battered it out on on uh, radio. I think there's an interesting point as well. I mean, um, you know, in relation, in, in the interest of, of equity, if you, start, if you set up the kind of the right-wing capitalist laissez-faire society uh, of, of Ireland and uh, wanted to advocate a, a, a particular, 
you know, economic libertarian view. Uh, could you argue the toss and say that you could be entitled uh, to state funding in order to promulgate that view uh, as well? I think over the course of the weekend, I read someone saying that all of the NGOs uh, tend to belong to a particular, that they, they, they tend to be parked on a particular part of the political uh, uh, spectrum, uh, which is certainly uh, uh, not to the right. I don't know if a study has ever been done uh, to look at the kind of the the political ideologies that that, uh, underpin such organisations and where they are on the spectrum. Uh, But I I don't think there are too many of those organisations that say that come uh, 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 from the right. And I'm not trying to advocate for, for those organizations that are on the right, but there might be a biddable case for them uh, to to uh, to also be in receipt of state funding, unless they're funda- fundamentally opposed to state funding, uh, which means that they're OK, Jack, well, at the end well, of the I can day. See, I can see some cases, Jane, where, where, where that might be appropriate. For example, I was reading uh, actually your, your DCU colleague Owen O'Malley in the, in the Sunday Independent, and he was pointing out some of these problems. And one of the things he mentioned was what in his view was some quite ridiculously draconian legislation pertaining to alcohol that's been introduced in the in the last few months. And one can have an opinion one way or the other on that. But the thing that struck me about that is that there is an argument for funding civic organisations that are are seeking to speak on behalf of the public interest in an area where there is huge commercial power and where the drinks industry, as we know, does have access to the corridors of power and does lobby and does spend a lot of money on that. I can see a point for that, but I, I'm I'm also interested by by this this question, which is, I mean, essentially, let's let's name it here. Let's say. All the organisations, and I had a look at the list of them, the ones that engage in advocacy that are funded by the state, they're essentially on the social justice progressive left and they don't really disagree with each other on that. And uh, that does not represent the full span of opinion on a range of issues, some of them quite contentious in Ireland. But yet they're the ones being funded by the state. Yeah, now what I'd be interested to see is um, to what extent they're being funded for service provision and to what extent they're being funded for advocacy. So I know a lot of them are funded for service provision. So say the National Women's Council, I think some of its funding is for women's aid and so on. So to actually do things and to hire people to actually provide services. So I think it's very important that we see, and I think this is one of the messes that we're kind of in, where we say, well, they're funded by the state. But in fact, they're probably providing a service that in some other countries, the state itself might actually provide. Um, and so therefore the funding isn't for the advocacy, but then it gets messed up between, well, what was for services and what, what is for advocacy? So I don't actually know the answer to that. I don't know when you look at the list of all the organizations that you saw, how many of them are actually funded for advocacy as opposed to services. I don't know the answer. And I'd like to know the answer to that because then it becomes important. And then how many of them have charitable status and how many on the right have charitable status? You know, some of the ones on the right definitely do have charitable status and they might not be providing services, but that charitable status then allows for a kind of a different kind of funding of the advocacy. So that's why I think it's important that we kind of sit back and do some research and actually try to understand what is actually here in the landscape, you know, rather than what we actually see to actually understand where the numbers are behind what we see. An editorial in the Irish Times today suggests that 
that really there, there's a there's a problem here, which is that we don't have a tradition, for whatever reason, of philanthropic support or perhaps small funding support from uh, that that might exist in other countries, perhaps larger countries, to support organisations of these sorts. And I suppose also it's true that some of these organisations represent marginalised parts of the. Uh, the community that don't have very many resources themselves anyway, and that therefore this is a kind of a best of all possible terrible worlds. I'm not sure if that's a satisfactory answer though, is it? No, like Atlantic philanthropies, um, and like I myself through the first We the Citizens benefited from their philanthropy, but they, they put a lot of money into different Irish universities, but also into different causes for children and and so on. Uh, But Chuck Feeney, you know, as he promised, he was going to uh, to spend it all before he died, and 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 so he did. And there aren't many other kind of very large organisations doing this kind of thing, but really there aren't many in uh, in many European countries. So most European countries are fairly reliant on a mixture between charitable donations and the state. Um, so I think rather than looking to kind of an Anglo-American model of thinking, well, maybe some billionaire philanthropist should come to our aid with whatever pet project he or she has, maybe we should actually think about, well, what do we actually need to fund? What What is most appropriate for the state to fund and uh, to run? And what is most appropriate for the state to outsource? And if it's outsourcing, then presumably it should be saying exactly what the service is and it should be tendering for it you know, rather than having any other deals. So I think this is what we what we need to look at. Maybe we need a Citizens', citizens Assembly to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Be, because one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on today in particular is, as I say, you've been very involved in the, the Citizens' Assembly movement and the Citizens' Assembly themselves, the setting up and uh, carrying out of Citizens' Assemblies, which is generally seen, I think it's fair to say, isn't it, internationally, that Ireland uh, has, has led the way to some extent on this as a, as a new form of kind of bringing, you know, bringing government and, and civic society together to make political decisions in a in a less uh, confrontational way than traditional partisan party politics allow for a more a more considered way with a with a, a selected group of the citizenry essentially like an extended jury being brought together to consider the pros and cons of whatever uh, issue might be at stake and it has um the assemblies have played a very important part in some really important changes in Irish society over the last decade or so. But your your colleague David Farrell, who's also been very involved in them as a political scientist in UCD, had a had an opinion piece in the Irish Times last week where he kind of seemed to indicate to me that the thing was going a bit off the rails. What do you think of that? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if that's exactly what David was doing, but certainly like if you look at it, um we the, the Irish Citizen Assembly process, when we first had the, the marriage equality referendum, those uh, headlines and the pictures of the crowds in Dublin Castle went around the world. And uh, so it, it very much became something that other countries started to, to look at. So both David and I have been involved in talking to lots of other organisations at kind of local and national level. And, you know, the... Um, the Chilean Constitution Convention has has looked at what we were doing 
in Belgium, France, Germany, the UK, Australia, all sorts of countries have been looking at the model, the the new um, Paris Assembly. And there's lots of different varieties and there's lots of ways. This is a very kind of new thing. So there's the way the Irish one started and we've been changing it. It's been kind of iterative as we've gone along. The first one had politicians in it and, you know, 10 different topics. The last one on gender had only one topic and no politicians in it. Um, the next one's coming along. There's there's uh, there's two, but the I think the motions are going through the Dáil today, uh, the Dáil and the Shannon today and tomorrow. But um, there's going to be one on uh, Dublin Lord Mayor, and that's actually going to have a number of uh, Dublin councillors in it. So it's kind of back to the very first constitutional convention. So I think there's lots of learning. And the one thing I would agree with David about is that kind of now that we're 10 years in, it would be really nice to do a really big piece of research and understand what is working well, what's working less well, what can we learn uh, from other countries, what, what's the kind of best practice that we have that is useful for other countries, because there's all sorts of different bits on the moving parts. And you'll see that each of our assemblies has learned a little bit from the last one. I think it's really interesting that the most recent one, Arsha Leary, who, um, as you know, was uh, Michael D's sec gen until recently. So Arsh uh, looked after the first Constitution Convention as secretary, and he's back in now this time. So Arsh will bring back in a lot of the learning. And I think that really we've come to the point that we should actually have an office in the Department of the Taoiseach or wherever is going to run this, where we keep that learning rather than having the kind of, you know, different... Um, principal officer looking after each one and, and learning again, as as David was pointing out. So perhaps the, the appointment of Irish is kind of a good sign in in um, in that direction. And, you know, there's different ways of looking at, um, well, how many of them get, are successful and which ones aren't. David point to a couple of the 2016 ones. But I think what happened there was there were four topics. There was the eighth, climate change, and then ageing and referenda. And the eighth and climate change were actually so important and the members were so interested in it and the body politic generally were so interested in the challenges of eighth and climate that the others got squeezed. And they didn't, as Harry and you will know, didn't have an Oireachtas committee looking at their output. In fact, the, the members spent very little time even looking at those issues. Um, so I think that was one of the learnings then with gender. It was just the, the kind of one issue. And then that has gone to an Oireachtas committee with Giovanna Bacic is is looking after so I think it's that kind of link into um, into the government afterwards, into the parliament that's important. That's one of the things that leads to this, whatever successes that there are, whereas the ones the parliament ignores, of course, nothing happens to. But that's real politic, I think. And then the other thing I think is it would be nice to actually have some bottom-up input into what topics, because at the moment the topics do come top-down from the government um, and in other countries, they've started ways, different ways in different countries of actually seeing what topics people would like to have in it. Uh, so you can have top down and bottom up input in. I have to say, personal view, I just don't quite understand why we need to have a, a, a citizens' assembly on the issue of a directed elected mayor for Dublin. This is a something which has been introduced in many other countries in recent years, and they didn't need one to figure this out. Is it maybe Harry just to get around this logjam which they ran into the last time with the with, with the various local authorities in Dublin to actually get this thing over the line? Uh, 
Well, you know, um, politicians sometimes tend to sprint very quickly away from very difficult uh, decisions. And sometimes uh, the Citizens uh, Assembly has provided a relatively uh, safe mudguard for them uh, in which to grapple with with, uh, difficult decisions. Uh, David Farrell pointed out that some of the Citizens Assemblies have been daft, to use his words, and I tend to agree with him. Uh, The one on the presidential term, for example, the seven-year presidential term, didn't need a citizens' assembly. It needed politicians to take a strong decision that seven years was just too long for a president. Uh, And instead, we went through a very convoluted process. Now, I have seen uh, a few of the citizens' assemblies in action. I think they do some things extremely well. Uh, And then there are some uh, drawbacks to them, uh, uh, both in the Irish model and other models that just need Uh, to be looked at. So what they do very well, so if you're dealing with a very substantive uh, uh, issue like abortion, for example, uh, it gives people an opportunity to have a real deep dive into the issues that are pertinent. Um, And people had views on abortion or kind of avoided having views on abortion in Ireland for many years without really understanding the process. And um, I'm very struck by by a, a quote by uh, either Regina Doherty or Hildegard Nocton around the time of the Oireachtas uh, Committee when they went uh, from being uh, um, very strongly opposed to uh, abortion to coming around to being in favour of abortion being introduced. And one of them said, I was opposed to it because I just didn't know I was ignorant. And one of the things the Citizens' Assembly has done has been they have been very good in terms of educating people in relation to the substance of issues. And I, I think the more substantial the issue, the more complicated the issue, uh, I think the better that citizen assemblies have worked. On the other hand, I think that um, there are difficulties. You're dealing with a very limited number of people, 100 people. And you see that people who have very strong personalities uh, can dominate a little bit in that. And sometimes it might not be a true reflection of the views of wider society. And in a sense, citizens assemblies are a microcosm of the views of wider society. I think the agenda is very important uh, as well. I'm not saying it has happened in the Irish context, but if you're not very careful, the agenda can be slightly manipulated. And also the process could could also be potential. I'm not saying this happened in Ireland either, but it seems to me just from looking at it, that if you're not careful, the process itself can be manipulated. If you have, for example, very persuasive speakers uh, on one side of the debate who are very compelling, and perhaps somebody who's as dry as an old shtick on the other side who can't put two words together. You get a disparity in terms of of, of the argument uh, that's uh, made. And also the choice of speaker. And, uh, you know, if people are choosing speakers that tend to, people who are organising it, are kind of swayed, as humans are, to kind of maybe go a little bit towards getting speakers who reflect their own views. That can potentially happen uh, as well. So they, 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 to me, look like potential downsides uh, 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 to it. And so Harry, can I ask you... Okay, can I, can I ask you, have you seen that? Because essentially, which is, I'm not saying, I, I hear you, you're not saying that it's completely skewed or anything like that. But these are sort of important things which can push the process and perhaps some of the results in a particular kind of a direction. Yeah, I, I, I've seen... Um, debates happen. I mean, you, you can't legislate for how good a person is going to argue the toss in, in a forum like that. And I have seen Citizens' Assembly where where, where somebody arguing on one side of the equation has been more powerful than the other side, to no fault of their own. Uh, just perhaps the other person hadn't rounded their thoughts sufficiently 
or lacked a little bit of cogency in terms of making their argument or perhaps hadn't prepared themselves as well uh, as the, the person who is speaking uh, on, on the other side. And, and in some of the Citizens' Assembly, I mean, the proposition that was put, everybody will agree with it anyway, you know. So uh, uh, they had huge difficulties in finding somebody who would argue against the proposition because the proposition was so self evident so so self evidently sensible you know that that few people could argue uh, uh, against it so that 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 was another place where where uh, i'm not saying that those who argued against were in any sense inferior but i think that the organizers of those who who were in charge of the citizens assembly struggled uh, to get speakers uh, who could argue with conviction against a proposition uh, that was self evidently sensible yeah, I, I I can see part of my job today is to is to stand up for the for the oppressed social conservative part of the electorate, and I'm more than happy to do that actually. And and this in this instance, there has been a criticism of some of the assemblies, Jane, from that from those quarters to say that a sort of a combination of you know saving your presence, academic elites, people from the sort of progressive end of Irish society, um, highly educated, in the words of Michael Gove, so-called experts coming in and and laying out a, a certain kind of a narrative has really has influenced them. And, and I suppose some of those critics would go even further. And what they'd say is that the whole idea of a citizens' assembly is an attempt by elites to grab the initiative back from the disruptive, unpleasant, unwashed, um, populist uh, surge of the last 10 years. I don't know. I'm sure you've I'm sure you've seen some of these criticisms. I wonder what you make of them. Yeah, well, I think the thing is that, like, what are we going to do? So some experts are good and some are bad. So I'm sure Harry has sat, sat through many an Oireachtas committee, which has called in experts on both sides. And some of those experts are better than others at... Uh, as, as what they're doing, you know. So does that mean that Oireachtas committees shouldn't call in experts because some are better than others? Do you know? So we, it, it, I'm, I'm not really sure where where we can go with that. But I think it's important that both sides of an argument are heard. And it's important that now we've tried to look at this, but I think, again, like a big research piece would be great to be able to look and actually say, you know, where did the, the experts come from? What happens in the Irish Citizens' Assemblies is they tend to appoint an expert advisory group. Um, So for the gender one, for example, that was a a number of um, uh, people from the ESRI. Um, It was one of my colleagues who's a lawyer in DCU and, and so on. And then they put forward the names and then the names go to a kind of a subcommittee of the of the citizens to say, you know, are you happy with these names? Now, perhaps that subcommittee should be um, should be empowered more to be able to uh, suggest more people. Maybe there should be greater budget for some experts to come from outside of the state for for travel or for expenses or or whatever, so we can get different ones. Maybe there should be more publication of the names who've been chosen, so as the interest groups on both sides can say what they're thinking. But I was very involved in the climate change one in Scotland, for example, and it was interesting there, you know, you had people from um, 
from various kind of green and climate organisations and they were, you know, putting forward their, their arguments as well as from the, you know, very large oil and gas industry up in, up in Scotland. And so you had to balance it and have different people. And one of the things that actually the aforementioned art brought in, which was very much seen as um, a kind of a, a global... It's, being followed globally, was to have a very clear division between experts who um, can give both sides and advocacy organisations. So if you think back to our um, marriage equality, our eighth referendums on marriage equality, for example, we would have had Colm O'Gorman from um, Amnesty at one end of a long table and somebody from the Knights of Columbanus at the other end of the same long table, you know. Being I tell you, it had to be a very long table in that case, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, to be able to, to give their arguments, but it was clear to the 100 members that these people had very clear positions. And to be fair, like the socially conservative people, they made some choices that perhaps didn't work as well for them. So, for example... They brought in some um, American pro-life people with American voices who were used to kind of advocating in um, to American uh, pro-life organisations, and that didn't sit particularly well. I felt with the with the hundred Irish citizens sitting in there having having those voices. So there's different kind of ways to to uh, to look at it. But I think to be really transparent about who the people are, to open it up and to allow the citizens to make other suggestions um, is important and it would be important that we would w- really focus on that. Yeah, you mentioned climate change. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. Just Harry. as an adjunct uh, to that, one person who, who I spoke to a lot when, when citizens' assemblies were being uh, thought of and established in Ireland was a guy called Ken Carthy, who's an academic uh, uh, from uh, Vancouver, from British Columbia, and he, he was saying that, that in the citizens' assemblies that they had done over there, sometimes at the start when, when, when citizens came in, they had to explain to the person who the Premier of British Columbia was and they'd have to make all kind of notes because people would have zero engagement with politics or with uh, political issues. But he, then he said that the, that the ex- experts would come in and make fantastic academic arguments, you know, really strong, uh, reasoned, thought-through academic uh, arguments. But he said that in most instances that um, that the citizen went with their hunch. Uh, yeah, we've, actually done, we've actually done research into this and so have other colleagues. One, um, a woman, Lala Maradova, who's actually working with me now in DCU. And so she's looked at the type of evidence that people have given and then the people who make the dry arguments versus the people who do more storytelling. And definitely there's, you know, everybody has different learning styles. We know this as as educators, you know this as journalists, you know, there's different people are going to read different types of stories and engage in different way on podcasts and the written word and, and so on and so forth. So there's definitely a section of people who will engage more with the kind of lived experience and with the storytelling than with the kind of drier academic um, arguments. And it's very important that things are brought back to kind of a, you know, a, a relatively young teenager kind of reading age to make sure that they're accessible for everybody. And some people are better than others at that. And the assembly needs a lot of time to go through people's evidence to make sure that it is put into um, a style and a format that, uh, you know, is accessible for, for everybody at different things. So these are challenges of it. And they're things that take time and money and thought to, to be able to get over. That's for sure. 
I, I just wonder about that listening to you there, Jane, on that issue, you know, the, the kind of the old the old cliche that hard cases make bad law. I mean, I've seen the argument made that 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 very often one side of an argument can be able to show here is a person who is very upset and they want this change to happen so that they won't be as upset anymore. Or they won't perhaps suffer something which may be a bad thing. And the person who is responding to them is on, is on a much more intellectual or indeed in the case of some of the issues we've been talking about here, philosophical or theological level. And that in those kinds of situations with a group of 100 people picked at random from the population, emotion will always win out over intellect or is more likely to. Yeah, I don't think it is that it always is. So um, I haven't looked at this research in the last few months, so I can't remember the numbers exactly, but it certainly wasn't a plurality of people who would go at that. But also, if you looked at uh, the eighth, the abortion was used on both sides. So, you know, one of the women brought in was a woman who said that if abortion had been allowed, she wouldn't exist because she would have been aborted a young American woman and, you know, was very much talking along those lines and making very emotional arguments from, you know, the from the socially conservative side. So certainly both sides use that. Um, but it doesn't have to be abusive. You know, people's personal experience is important. Like one of the reasons many of the politicians changed their mind on the 8th is because they actually started thinking about the, you know, the lived experience of women who were undergoing crisis pregnancies. So, you know, it is important as well that, you know, you're able to articulate the lived experience of people. Well, we've already mentioned um, Sinn Féin earlier and we mentioned um, environmental issues earlier. Um, After this break, we're going to talk about the two together. And you're welcome back. Uh, Jane Souter and Harry McGee are still here. Now, Harry, you have a story uh, which caught my eye uh, this morning in the Irish Times, and it's about um, Sinn Féin and carbon tax. Um, One of the things that strikes me about what might be called the more old school um, liberal left and one of the difficulties it has with perhaps travelling over to full scale to become um, a supporter of Sinn Féin is the attitude of the party to things like property tax and also carbon tax, where it has adopted what some people would see as a more populist position. It doesn't believe in carbon tax. It believes in climate change, but it doesn't believe in carbon tax. And you're writing today about Pierce Doherty, who's very much standing over that position. There's no sign of Sinn Féin shifting on that at all. Oh, oh no. And um, not only does he, I mean, the impression I got from speaking to Pierce Doherty yesterday was that not only does he want uh, the increases in carbon tax in April and November deferred, he wants all future increases in carbon tax deferred and and an alternative source of money to be found uh, to do uh, the big kind of um, uh, step change uh, um, infrastructural work that will have to be done over the next 10 years, such as deep retrofitting, modal shift and transport, uh, move to renewable forms of electricity. Now, Pierce Doherty does have a point, you know, um, there, there is a, 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 a class urban versus rural uh, uh, dichotomy, uh, two dichotomies to be discerned here, because those who are most dependent on fossil fuel are those who live out in the country, who live away from, from you know, who live in small communities in the country. Uh, they are dependent on uh, uh, fossil fuel to heat their homes because they have oil burners and they are also dependent on um, fossil fuels to, to, to provide them with transport because they don't have access 
uh, to public transport and public transport, as we know, is hit and miss uh, in rural Ireland, though it has improved uh, in recent uh, uh, years. And what he seems to be targeting there is a section of the population that is just above the welfare threshold, uh, uh, but is just earning enough to survive, to pay its taxes and doesn't have the kind of disposable um, income that will be needed uh, to buy an electric car or to buy a low emitting car that's uh, more efficient on diesel or petrol and also uh, to convert their um, homes uh, from uh, oil burning uh, boilers uh, to uh, uh, air to heat converters, uh, um, uh, which are quite a costly uh, item. And he also makes the argument, yes, the government has a a grant scheme that it's offering, uh, but um, people are still going to have to pony up 25 grand. And when you go to rural Donegal and Leitrim and Sligo and Mayo, uh, West Galway, uh, anywhere in rural Ireland, uh, where, they, where they're not connected to the gas network or they're not connected uh, to uh, renewable energy and they're depending on fossil fuel to heat their homes, uh, you know, they're not going to be able to afford that. So there is an argument there. The difficulty with the Sinn Féin argument is they make the criticism, but then you kind of say, well, where is the alternative? I mean, what are your alternative policies? And whereas Sinn Féin has very well thought through policies in terms of housing, in terms of finance, I mean, Doherty is 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 very, very good on finance and has developed a, a range of very, very strong policies in recent years. They might not be everybody's cup of tea, uh, but they're thought through and they're costed and what have you. Uh, I think on climate change, the party has been lacking. When you look at its climate change policies, what's notable is that they don't really have any. You know, they, they agree with the targets. They agree that we should reduce uh, uh, emissions by 51 percent by 2030. They agree with all the big targets. But when you ask Sinn Féin, well, how are we how are you actually going to achieve that? They don't really have any feasible policies at the moment, uh, notably in the pre-budget document that they had last autumn. Uh, one of the uh, policies they had that they said would reduce emissions was to actually increase uh, the payment per headage uh, to uh, to suckler beef to 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 beef to beef uh, herds, and they said that, that would uh, in some way. Uh, improve climate change. But everybody I spoke to said uh, that would uh, have the opposite effect, that people, that farmers would be encouraged to increase uh, the number of cattle they had, the beef cattle they had on their farms. And uh, it, the the uh, impact of that would be that climate uh, emissions or that greenhouse gas emissions, methane emissions would actually increase uh, rather than decrease. So I, I get some of the argument that Piers Doherty is making in relation to this kind of inequity between those in rural Ireland who don't have a huge amount of money and are kind of struggling to survive uh, and uh, the, the way that, that they will have to pay carbon taxes, which would be much easier for urban dwellers who have more money, more disposable income and can afford all those things. But the problem that I have with the Sinn Féin policy is that there doesn't seem to be a biddable alternative being put on the table by the party. And perhaps they can just get away with that for the moment, um, Jane. You know, they're they're the party of opposition. They probably will need to put some vaguely plausible financial plans together in advance of the next election. But that's probably not for a couple of years. We're in the in the midst of a cost of living crisis right now. Um, there's political capital to be made, and any self-respecting opposition would do the same. 
Yeah, perhaps. Like, I, th- I think one of the things is that obviously Sinn Féin is um, getting a lot of support from people as a result of its uh, policies on the on the housing market, which is very much seen as a crisis. So I guess it depends what's going to happen with housing and whether people are going to do it. Because um, I saw a little bit of research that uh, you might even have talked to him um, about it, that Kev Cunningham did, um, you know, which looked at um, the kind, you know, people's willingness to vote for Sinn Féin on, uh, on the environment and on housing. And it was definitely on, on housing. And the, as, as Harry says, climate change is, is a huge lacuna. And I'm also not sure about this kind of set, the way they set it up as a binary between urban and, uh, and rural. I was actually um, helping a friend of the family kind of look for um, somewhere uh, to live recently. And the amount of houses we saw in, uh, in Dublin with like no insu- absolutely no insulation still being he- heated by uh, Bunsen burners. By Oh, not Bunsen burners, the... What are those ones we used to have? And They'd be flats. in trouble if they were heating it with Bunsen burgers. <laughs> no. <laughs> they, they, they certainly would. Colour cos and gas. Co- those kind of things. Super, 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 super surs. Super surs. Super surs. Yes, That's I remember the them well from my bedsit days. Yeah. And there's still a hell of a lot of houses in urban Dublin being heated by super surs. Um, like, it's absolutely awful. And, you know, like, one of the things we need to do is decide, well, whose houses are we going to retrofit and how are we going to afford this? And I just personally, without being an expert in climate change, you know, you've had those people on. I personally think that I should pay some carbon tax and hopefully that might go to pay for the lady in the flat next door to me who's using a supercer to heat her kitchen to have her kitchen retrofitted for her. Do you know what I mean? So I think this idea that the three of us shouldn't pay any carbon tax because that, you know what I mean? It's about deciding who to support and at what what extent and at what level. And it's about not trying to set up these binaries between urban and rural, which I, which I just don't accept. You know, I, I understand rural people have to drive more, but certainly their houses are not colder than uh, many of the houses of, uh, of people in, in poorer circumstances in Dublin and, and Cork and, uh, and Galway and so on. And so, you know, I just wonder whether the, the housing will be salient enough for long enough to bring um, Sinn Féin in while people know that its climate policies are really lacking and undetailed and populist, or whether that will become more of a focus coming into the next election. And that's going to be the interesting thing to watch. I just wonder, Harry, you know, there's a, there's, I mean, you mentioned it already. There's a particular tranche of people who aren't right at the bottom of the, um, of the economic ladder, but are not doing particularly well, but don't necessarily have access to the kind of social supports which are being mentioned as compensation to some extent for, for, for some of these, these carbon increases. And so are therefore then in the worst of all possible worlds. And, you know, we have, I've said it before, we have an example in another country to point to, to how these things can blow up politically. And that's the Gilets Jaunes. Yeah, well, the, the 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 opposition to carbon tax it did remind me a little bit of the of the gilet jaune uh, protest. The one thing that Pierce uh, Darty didn't mention uh, during the course of his argument uh, was that a lot of the revenue raised will be used for social transfers. So those who are poorest and those who are most in need 
uh, will get transfers, you know, to 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 compensate them for for carbon tax, and in some cases, we'll get more more than that. And also, a lot of the funding will be used uh, for uh, deep retrofitting. You know, the social housing stock or or, or the the, uh, the the state housing stock. Uh, but but for the people who aren't in social housing and the people who are in employment but are in relatively low paid employment, th- those those were who the gilets jaunes were. And they they are they they now comprise a very important part of, of Sinn Fein's constituency. They would have been traditionally described as blue collar workers, I think, in the old uh, taxonomy. And um they they traditionally would have been Fianna Fall voters in the past. They would have been the people that Fianna Fall uh, uh attracted a huge level of, of support for. And uh, there is uh, that constituency feel particularly uh, aggrieved and left behind at the moment. If you look at through the, the, the details of, of the, the uh, opinion polls, uh, you'll see that that, uh, all, that that whole demographic is veering towards opposition parties and is very dissatisfied uh, with uh, the government at present. And for them, housing is a big issue because a lot of those are people who don't qualify for social housing, uh, but uh, find it impossible uh, to get onto the housing ladder because of the sheer unaffordability of housing uh, at, at the moment. And um, for the government parties to attract those uh, voters back, I mean, the only only way that they could conceivably do that is if they solve the housing problem. And solving the housing problem is something that is not going to be done uh, this week, this month, this year, or perhaps even this decade. Well, indeed. Uh, but uh, I lost thought on this, Jane, and it, it, it is that... Sinn Féin has, hasn't up to recently had to make perhaps the most important calculation of all, which is the long-term calculation, which is how do all these things then play if and when we actually finally end up in government? And we have had political examples in the past of promises um, almost destroying political parties. The Labour Party is a, a good example 10, 10 years ago, um, that if you over-promise and then badly under-deliver, um, that can be the worst of all possible worlds. And so presumably at this point in its evolution and growth, Sinn Féin has to be looking at those kinds of elements more seriously. Yeah, you would think so. Um, but I, I guess one of the calculations is that it's thinking it's likely to be the larger party in government and it's often the smaller parties which, uh, which suffer more. And second of all, then, if you are in coalition, you cannot put it into your programme for government on the basis that your smaller coalition partner didn't want it. So it might end up in a manifesto, but not in a programme for government. So I would imagine there's calculations like that also uh, coming into the mix. What do you think, Harry? I agree totally. I think that's a very good get out of jail clause for any uh, party. You know, we did want to put it in, but the other uh, uh, blighters uh, decided that they didn't want it. So we couldn't do it in the end, you know, and it's not our fault. And it's it's a strategy that has served political parties very, very well. Uh, didn't work for Eamon Gilmore, albeit he was in the smaller party mm. of the equation. He, he was, yeah. But I think what ruined those was that they, they the Tesco ad, I mean, it was... You know, parties are reminded of promises, but this was a visual representation of all the things that they were promised. And over the course of two or three years, every single thing that they had said that they would go into government for, uh, uh, actually, uh, so to, f- that, that they would ensure would not happen, actually happened while they were uh, in, in government. And that's what really uh, uh, ruined them. I think they might have had a slightly better chance of getting away with it. I'm talking about relatives here, had not that Tesco ad actually existed. I do wonder 
if a party goes into power on a, on a program which promised to get rid of carbon tax and get rid of property tax, and then, as I predict will happen, does not do those two things, there has to be some kind of blowback there. I, I, I think so. I, 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 think, yeah. I, I think that Sinn Féin realised that uh, once they go into government, uh, the dynamic will change. And the party will find itself in a position where it's 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 experiencing the law of diminishing political returns. Uh, it's a little bit, I mean, even the first day in government, it's almost like buying a new car. Once you drive away from the showroom, that car is devalued by certain uh, by a couple of thousand euro. And that's going to happen to Sinn Féin and any party that goes in, into government. They but by going into government, they will betray a certain section of their support who think who are, who, are, who are inherently anti-establishment and anti-government parties by extension. Uh, and then they they will disappoint those who campaigned for them to do certain things which they have not been, which they're not capable uh, of delivering. So I, I'd say that if Sinn Féin does go into government, it will struggle uh, to maintain the support levels it has attained when it is going into government. And last thought, Jane, because we've talked about this before, which is the sort of the complex coalition which makes up the, the, the modern Sinn Féin voter base. And when it comes into contact with the realities of power, which Harry describes, it will come under significant pressure. Oh, it'll be very significant pressure, you know, like trying to keep on board the uh, older rural voters that you were talking about who, who used to vote for for Fianna Fáil and the the kind of the younger, more urban ones who otherwise might vote for the, the Greens or something is going to be uh, an enormous challenge. But that's the circle of political life and that's what, what we cover here. We're going to leave it there. Thanks very much to Jane for joining us from all the way from the West Coast in the United States. Enjoy the rest of your day because your day has just started. Um, thanks to Harry for joining us. We haven't seen you in a while. Great to have you back. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're going to be back uh, very soon. Remember, you can contact us with your views or your opinions or even your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.